Good morning, church. My name is Tim Rockwell, and I serve as our music director here at Ridgeway Church. I also have the privilege of helping to support our Celebrate Recovery ministry, and I'm so excited to share with all of you this morning. But I got to be really honest that preparing a message is really hard work. Each time I get to do this, my appreciation and admiration for Pastor Brian and, and Bethy and those that serve on the teaching team really grows exponentially. I do a lot of larger presentations at work, and I've realized that when presenting information, uh, in order to be successful, two things have to happen. One, you need to be extremely well prepared. What happens inside your brain when you're preparing is generally very focused and controlled. Maybe the occasional distraction, a text message or a phone call or someone comes into the room where you're preparing, but generally you can get back on track uh, without too much distraction. But what happens when you present live is there are thousands of distractions that begin to creep into your mind. Uh, am I getting my point across? Am I making sense? Are they understanding me? These are all things that are going through my mind as I share now. Oh, I forgot to make that point earlier on. Is there any chance that I can squeeze it in uh, smoothly, et cetera, et cetera. So it's very important that when you present live, you're, you're well prepared because all that traffic in your brain can cause us sometimes to forget how to communicate. And so in order to overcome that, again, you have to be very well prepared so that you can balance all that unwanted activity in your brain with the information you're trying to communicate. The second thing that has to happen is you have to try to become an expert on your content. So in addition to being well prepared, you need to make sure that your understanding of the content is so strong that you can communicate it in a way that helps your audience become mini experts in a short amount of time so that the information can be digested and in this case, applied. Simplicity, they say, is the highest form of sophistication. So how can I communicate sometimes deep, always meaningful, life-changing information in a way that everyone can have nuggets to take away and begin to apply to their lives? It's amazing to me how Pastor Brian can do this week in and week out. Now, I work in corporate leadership, specifically with consumer products, and so I've become an expert in those areas. If I needed to give one 60-minute presentation on building teams or organizational development or crisis management like we're in right now or conflict resolution or reading and analyzing PL statements, implementing go-to-market strategies, et cetera, et cetera, no problem. I could probably do that relatively quickly with little preparation and put together one presentation. Go even deeper, you talk about our product lines. If you wanna talk value proposition or competitive advantage or a myriad of feature sets within our product categories, no problem. I could probably do another one 60-minute presentation on relatively short notice uh, and I, because it's stuff that I think about and execute on every single day. But I realize that when I have the opportunity every so often to communicate God's word, I have a growing desire to become an expert on the content. I love the preparation process because it stretches me and grows me and challenges me because there's so much about the Bible and the truths of God's word and of his kingdom that I want to learn more about. So much that I can communicate clearly and simply so folks can digest and apply the information. My challenge to you is the same challenge that I took on this week, and that's to get into the Word. Become an expert on it. If the only Bible that you are consuming on a weekly basis is on Sunday mornings, there's something wrong. There's, there's a problem. Try to take a text 
or a topic from the Bible and write 5,000 words on it and present it in front of a mirror or something like that, or to your spouse or to your children or a friend. God will work miraculously in the process through his God-breathed word to train, to teach, to correct in order for us to become more like Jesus. So I've been really thankful for that process this week, but it takes me back to Pastor Brian because what impresses me immensely about him is that he is a well-prepared expert on the content that he shares and not just a one-time presentation about something that he lives and breathes and eats, sleeps, and dreams every single day, but he brings it week after week and that takes a lot of work, a lot of experience, a lot of time studying and applying the truth of the Bible in his life on top of running the organization and caring for people's hearts and counseling and weddings and funerals and building maintenance and daycare logistics and on and on. He has so much responsibility, yet he cares so much for us that he balances his weekly workload with the amazing ability to prepare a message on topics that he becomes an expert on so that we can digest and then apply God's word in our lives. Amazing. So major shout out to Pastor Brian. Happy to give you the weekend off this week. Uh, so thank you for your, your tireless investment in our lives. All right, now on to the message. So one of the things, one of the many things that I've been binge watching over the last couple weeks, uh, in addition to the Michael Jordan documentary, are all these commencement speeches that renowned uh, individuals and celebrities are putting out for high school and college graduates this year, right? Have you seen them? So Barack Obama, Oprah Winfrey, LeBron James, Anthony Fauci, Matthew McConaughey, and Tom Hanks. These are just a few of the ones that I've watched. It's a bit of extra pomp for these unusual circumstances. Anyways, almost all of them talk about, to some degree, making a difference in this world, right? Through innovation, charity, social engagement, equity, justice, political activism, boldness of thought, daring decisions, etc. You've heard these speeches. And the reality is, is as fun as it's been accessing all these really high-powered commencement speeches this year, the whole big making a difference theme really hasn't changed that much in commencement speeches probably over the last 50 to 100 years. They start to all sound the same. And as I went back to look through celebrity commencement speeches from years past, a lot of the themes are the same, although they don't have the one thing in common, which is our unique circumstances right now with the coronavirus. But it, making a difference in this world has been a pretty popular topic to communicate to young people or individuals at pivotal times in their lives because there is something ingrained so deep inside of us that I believe God put there that wants us to make a difference, a lasting impact, to leave our mark on our society, on our family, on our work. We as believers, though, are fortunate because we know that we are not earthly citizens. We belong to a heavenly kingdom. We have a royal heritage that is not so much as the great and now late Ravi Zacharias talks about, focused on right or left as much as it is focused on up and down. So we have the tools and the calling to make a truly lasting impact. Not one just of this world where moth and rust destroy and thieves can break in and steal as Matthew 6 talks about, but an impact that lasts for eternity. It struck me this week that what these speakers are really talking about is investment. Not just stock market investment or financial investments as we stereotypically think about that word, but giving. How and what and why we give to something in order to yield 
the highest and best return, giving of your time, your energy, your effort, your money, your thought, your treasures. Treasures are things that are of value to you, things that are important to you. How do we invest in those to get returns that will make a difference on the earth? That's the question they're asking. And not all of those things are necessarily bad, but when we're weighing where and what and why to give, we need to be thinking about this question. Is it good or is it God? In John Bevere's book titled, After That Same Question, Good or God, he uses this illustration. If two families both move into $200,000 homes, respectively, how come for one family that's a good move and one family that's a bad move? And the answer to that question is really simple because the first family is probably upgrading from a 500-square-foot, one-bedroom apartment and the other family is downgrading from a $3 million estate. So if our point of reference for good is solely based on our perspective or the world's perspective, we're probably missing out on God's perspective and what he is up to in this world. But what the kingdom of God is all about, what the Bible calls us to as Christ followers to do is to invest, to give the same resources that this earth competes for into the kingdom of God, into eternity. So my message today is about investment. It's about giving. It's about generosity. And no, Pastor Brian didn't put me up to this. In fact, I didn't even run my sermon notes past him. So he's hearing this for the first time as you are. And I'm not doing this to launch some capital campaign or because the church is hurting financially. I wanted to speak about generosity because for me personally, I've needed to take the focus off myself during these unique, tough, challenging times. And giving really helps us do that. At times, I've needed these last several weeks, and my wife Brittany can confirm this, I've needed a bit of an attitude adjustment. And there's no better way to spur on a change in attitude than reflecting on the words of Jesus. In fact, Jesus talked more about money and generosity than he talked about just about any other topic, more than heaven and hell combined. About one-third of his parables recorded in Scripture are about finances, generosity, and the proper heart posture around giving. So the title of my message this morning is Two Principles for Giving, One Promise for the Giver. Two Principles for Giving, One Promise for the Giver. And there's a subtitle this week too. It's, the subtitle is French Fries and Fathers. That'll make more sense in a little bit. Two principles for giving, one promise for the giver. Now, this is not an exclusive list. It was really hard to narrow it down to just two principles and one promise because the Bible says so much about generosity, but we have a finite amount of time, so let's get going. I'm not going to lie. At one point this week, I did Google this question, how long is a 10,000-word speech? And you would not like the answer to that question any more than I did. So we had to narrow it down. Two principles, one promise. We're going to be all over the Bible today. So hopefully you have your Bible. You can follow along quickly. Otherwise, we'll post the verses at the bottom of the screen here along with some key points so that you can take notes. All right, ready? Two principles for giving, one promise for the giver. We'll, talk, we'll start with the two principles. Principles are truths and foundations. So two truths and foundations, two principles for generosity. Principle number one, everything we have belongs to God. Everything we have belongs to God. It's pretty clear to see that in Scripture. Specifically, even more so, just look at the book of Psalms alone. 
Psalm 24, 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Psalm 50, 10 says, For every animal of the forest is mine, this is God talking, and the cattle on a thousand hills. Psalm 50, 12, If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. Psalm 104, 24, How many are your works, Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Looks like King David, who wrote most of the book of Psalms, the great worshiper, really understood the first principle of giving, that everything belongs to God. And we can learn a couple things about generous giving from David's life as we look at it in the Bible. There's a story that I love in 2 Samuel 24. When David was preparing to build the temple, he purchased land. God actually told him to purchase this specific land that is now the Temple Mount. Uh, Pastor Brian and Debbie were just in, in Jerusalem, in Israel, a couple months ago. And I think uh, he told a story, at least for the family, me personally. Uh, he, he, he explained how important that piece of geography is politically and socially and religiously and geographically. Uh, really interesting, but I digress. So anyway, so David bought the land from a man named Arana. And Arana would have obviously known who David was. He was the king. And so he offered King David his land for free and even offered to provide the animals for a sacrifice. But in, in 2 Samuel 24, verse 24, listen to what David says. It's amazing. David says, no, I will not have it as a gift. I will buy it. For I don't want to offer to the Lord my offerings that have cost me nothing. Here's the deal. The land didn't belong to David. David realized that everything belongs to God and the land wasn't his to take. Even though he was king, listen, David was the king. He could have taken the land, but he realized that God entrusted that land to the landowner. Arana was God's steward, his manager, and that land, and Dave, he was the, the steward of that land, excuse me, and he and David wanted to buy it outright. His conviction was that building the temple was going to be an act of worship that cost him something. A sacrifice of praise, if you will. Now follow me here. It was David essentially giving money back to God that was already his in the first place to buy land that was God's but entrusted to another individual. Everything belongs to God. And David wrote about that in Psalms. And there was so much evidence that in his life. The story of Arana. Uh, but... David ended up not being able to build the temple because he was a man of war. We learn that from scripture. But he had given the architectural design and what some would estimate to be three to six billion dollars in today's money to fund the building, the construction of the temple. An absolutely unbelievable number. David's generosity just poured out of his life so clearly as we see it in scripture. To wrap up the first principle of giving, that everything belongs to God, I'm going to share a story that I heard recently. It's the story of a father who took his young five-year-old son through a drive through one day. The young boy ordered a Happy Meal and the father ordered a burger. And as they drove away, the little boy, ecstatic about his treat, you know, first opened up the toy and put his little action figure in his lap and then went after his nuggets. If you have kids, you've seen this movie before, right? But after a few minutes driving, the father reaches over into the boy's bag and grabs a few fries. The boy immediately let out a loud, blood-curdling scream and he said, MINE! as he slapped the father's hand away. Now, when I first heard this story, 
my reaction was, as I'm sure yours is, how ridiculous this little boy is for thinking that really anything is his, especially those fries that his father had just provided for him. The little boy really doesn't own anything. He doesn't have a job or money or transportation to get to the burger joint in the first place. And it is only by his father and through his father that he has access to French fries or even really knows what French fries are in the first place. My next thought in that instant was the father could have reacted immediately and taken the fries away, right? He had the complete power and authority to do that based on his relationship with the son as father and the little boy's attitude. The boy's entire fry distribution network was his father, right? And the father could have done whatever he wanted with the reaction he got from the boy. So it's so clear as we hear that kind of silly parable, uh, it's so clear to us that everything the little boy has is from his father. The same is true of us and God. It makes no sense when we slap his hand away and say mine, because in reality, it's all his. And he entrusts it to us. More on the French fries and the father later on. So principle number one, everything we have belongs to God. Principle number two, so these are principles for giving, truths and foundations for giving. Principle number two, we should give to God first. The Old Testament talks a lot about the tithe and about our first fruits. And I'm not a theologian, so I'm not going to dig into the difference between the two and how one was more of a tax law and one was a festival and then there were offerings on top of that, etc. But the point is that the people of God were to honor him by giving a tithe, the first 10% of their income, back to God as an act of worship. Malachi 3.10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Proverbs 3.9, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Crops were the currency in their day. Leviticus 27.30, a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. Jacob said in Genesis 28.22, and of all that you give me, I will give back to you a tenth. Deuteronomy 14.22, be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Now, there's some debate today, healthy debate, on whether the tithe is still required for Christians who aren't living under the law anymore, like the Old Testament Israelites were. But Matthew 5.17 in the New Living Translation says that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets, but to accomplish their purpose. So instead of us doing somersaults around the word of God looking for ways out of the tithe, Think of it as the floor, not the ceiling. Think of it as the starting point and not the destination. If it was good enough for God's chosen people, it's a good idea for us to continue that principle today. The purpose of the tithe that has been accomplished, remember like that verse says that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to accomplish its purpose. The purpose of that law, the tithe, is enshrined in that first principle of giving that we talked about, that everything that we have belongs to God. And we prove it, we prove that we believe that principle by giving back to him first. Some of you need to hear this. God is not after your money. Ridgeway Church is not after your money. Let me say it again. God is absolutely not after 
your money. He's after a relationship. God made us stewards or managers of this earth, and he delights in sharing through partnership. My grandfather, my mom's dad, passed away late last year, and I have so many fond memories of our relationships, but he was really generous. He was a great sharer, as we call it in our family. And one of my favorite memories I have with him is uh, fairly regularly when we were out there on summer break uh, in July every year, uh, we called him Papa. Papa would take us to what he called the candy store. And looking back, I think it was just a convenience store, normal old convenience store in their neighborhood in, in inner city downtown Baltimore. But he would take us to this to this candy store. And I remember he liked lemon heads, so he got that. My mom liked lemon heads, he got that. I, I think at the time I was after uh, gummy bears, and so I would get gummy bears. And, and my older sister and I, and probably some younger siblings, you know, later on in the years, we would go to the candy store with Papa, and then we'd walk home. And I so vividly remember uh, sitting upstairs uh, at their house at the dining room table and laying out the candy and just sharing with each other. And I would share with him and, and he would share with me. And sometimes he wouldn't even get anything, but he would still share with me. And the reality is, is he didn't take what I had because he needed it, but there is joy in sharing. There is joy and privilege for both parties in sharing what a provider has given to us. God doesn't need us to give back to him because everything is his in the first place. And to accomplish his purpose on this earth, he gives us the privilege of being involved. The last thing I'll say on principle two is this, and I'm going to quote my best friend Wade here, who shares this wisdom with high school students who are aspiring business people. He teaches them this, when we give our money away, it has no hold on us. When we give our money away, it has no hold on us. I'll say it in a slightly different way. Giving puts money in its place. Giving puts money in its place. What you have to understand and write this down is giving does this. It, it shows gratitude for the past and trust for the future. Matthew 6, 24 says that no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. Then he lets on to what he's really talking about. This is Jesus. You cannot love both God and money. It doesn't say that you should not love both God and money like it's a bad idea. It says that it's impossible. You cannot love both God and money. The love of those two things are mutually exclusive. When we give our first and our best back to God, we are setting the tone in our budget and in our lives that God comes first in everything saying to money, I don't love you. You have no hold on me. You are God's in the first place and I love God, not you. Deuteronomy 14, 23 sums it up this way. The purpose of tithing is to teach you always to put God first in your lives. That is the point. So that wraps up the two principles for giving. That everything we have belongs to God. And the second principle, we should give to God first. So now on to the one 
promise for the giver. And this is a big promise. This is an overarching promise. This is a, a large umbrella that I snuck several other promises under. But now onto the one big promise for the giver. God makes a ton of promises in the Bible. Google told me this week, over 7,000 promises can be found in scriptures. And like the teachings and parables of Jesus, the list is dominated by promises for generous givers. It really begs the question, why is giving and giving generously so important to God? Why does Jesus talk so much about money? Why are the promises of God in scripture littered with promises for the giver and not just the generous giver of money, but time, encouragement, energy, thought? I'm gonna reference back to part of my opening. It's because those things are of value to us. They are our treasures. And the most famous verse in the Bible on giving is where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, when we did a Heart for the House campaign a couple years back, I shared a really short video clip on that verse and the joy of giving, the joy of generosity. And I shared a, a short analogy that I'll share with you today. Um, if you were to invest a large sum of money, let's say it's $100,000 into a publicly traded company uh, on the stock exchange. So let's say it's Google, so that's a company that everybody knows. So you were gonna invest $100,000 into Google, you would immediately be concerned with the health of that company. You would think about that company. You would care how they conduct business. You would be on shareholder calls. You would watch the stock every day or most days. You would do research, but you would care deeply about that investment. The same works for when we invest into the kingdom of God. Oftentimes people think that our heart comes first and then our treasure. So you, you hear, well, so I, I got this, this letter in the mail from a missionary to support them on their next mission trip. But it's, ah, I don't really have a heart for that. Or yeah, my friend invited me to this fundraiser for that ministry or, you know, church is taking up a special offering for, to bless a guest speaker or uh, to bless the schools in our area. But it's like, you know what? I don't really have a heart for those things. You're thinking about it the wrong way. Your heart follows your treasure. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So when we proactively invest our treasures generously, we end up caring about the people our giving reaches. This is a whole other message probably, but generosity is love in action. That's why God cares so much about it. It proves what we're invested in. And we don't love people unless we're generous with them. Again, God is not after your money. He doesn't need it. But for those of us that are born again into his family, like a good father, he is after your heart. He is concerned with the heart of his kids. And he wants our hearts to be connected to the same thing that his heart is connected to. My wife and I are expecting our, our first child in August. And one of the things that I've done, which is kind of silly, but I, I talked to her pregnant belly. And uh, I've caught myself, I don't say a lot, but one of the things that I've caught myself, because at this point, our son, he can hear. We learned that through you know this what to expect when expecting app a couple months ago that, all right, the baby has ears. And at this point in the pregnancy, you can now hear what's going on outside. So. A little bit of pressure with that, but other than that, it's been really fun. And so 
I, I kind of leaned down and I, I talked to her belly. And, and what I've said is, I said, uh, Daddy loves Jesus. You should love Jesus. Daddy loves mom. I want you to love mom. Daddy loves the Dallas Cowboys. You're going to love the Dallas Cowboys. Daddy's a Los Angeles Lakers fan. You're going to be a Lakers fan. Daddy loves Billy Joel and has seen him live five times. I cannot wait for you to be born and listen to Billy Joel. I want my son to like, to be passionate for the same things that I'm passionate for. A couple of those are sort of silly, uh, although I really need him to be a Cowboys fan, but I want him to love Jesus. I want him to love his mom as much as I love his mom. And I wanna share in the same passions with my son as he grows up. I want our hearts to be connected to the same thing. And God wants that for us too. So. Promise number one. This is the big promise. Generous giving leads to more. It's that simple. Generous giving leads to more. More resources, more opportunities to give and meet needs, more blessing, more influence, more joy, more happiness, more fulfillment, more thankfulness, more. Why does God reward our giving by giving us more? It's because it's who he is. He is a generous God. And if you don't believe me, just look at two major events in history, creation and the cross. He gave us life. He breathed life into us on earth and gave us the chance at life with him forever. He is so generous. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. That was the largest gift that he could have given. And it's been given to me. It's been given to you. God is generous. Now, I'm going to continue by breaking down some of the areas where he wants to give more to the giver. The first area is resources. Generous giving leads to more resources. Proverbs 3, 9, and 10, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. I read that uh, first part earlier when we were into the second principle, uh, but there's more here as well. Listen, then your barns will be overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. Giving leads to more resources. 2 Corinthians 9, 6, remember this, whoever sows sparingly, whoever invests sparingly, will also reap sparingly, will return sparingly. And whoever sows, whoever invests generously, will also reap and return generously. Generous giving leads to more resources. Another verse, Proverbs eleven twenty four. There is one who scatters yet increases. There is one who scatters yet increases more. Think about this. Scatters, the word is gives. There is one who gives yet gets more. That's what that verse means. Now, in our earthly economy, that makes no sense, right? Conventional thinking says, the more I give away, the less I have. I have 10 apples, I give three of them away, I have seven. But kingdom economics says, the more I give, the more I receive. It's absolutely amazing. Generous giving leads to more. This next area, more opportunities to give and meet needs. Malachi 3.10 in the second principle, I read the first part of this verse, but there's a promise that 
came along with that premise. The premise is bring the full tithe into the storehouse. The storehouse was the temple, their place of worship. So for us, that would be Ridgeway, our church. Bring the full tithe into the church that there may be food in my house. In other words, to meet the needs of the church, operating expenses, staff payroll, uh, investment locally and globally. And here's the promise. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, and see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down a blessing until, I love how the English Standard Version says that, until there is no more need. A window from heaven will be opened up for God to provide until there is no more need. I love that we get to be involved with that. That's so fun. This verse is the only place in the Bible where God directly tells us to test him. This is the God of the universe allowing us to test him. The point, though, is you can't outgive God. Try it. If you talk to lifelong givers, your heroes in the faith, they will tell you 100% of the time, they will confirm this, that you can't outgive God. People that have given a lot of money for a lot of years will confirm this truth. As you give to God, he will undoubtedly give more to you. You can be like, one of the ways I've, I've liked to think about it uh, this week is you can be like a generous spigot with an endless, endless water source. If you are turned on a little bit, a little bit of water will come through, but that doesn't change how much water is in the source. But if you are on full throttle, more comes out faster and more than expected. So whether a spigot is turned on a little or at full blast, again, it doesn't change how much supply is at the source, only how much can come through. I'm running short on time, so I can't go through all the additional ways that giving leads to more, but I encourage you this week to study it for yourself. There are promises that generosity leads to more influence, more blessing, more joy, happiness, fulfillment, thankfulness, and on and on. I'll leave you today, though, with an alternate ending to your favorite new French fry story. When the father reached in to, to the little boy's bag, it wasn't because he needed his son's fries. He could have easily have bought his own. After all, he was the source of all French fries. It's because he was teaching his son how to share and he was testing his response. You see, when the little boy wasn't looking or listening, the father whispered to the drive through attendant to order 10 supersized fries. The worker said, I can do that, but it's gonna take some time. So the father decided to circle the block. You see, the plan all along was to give the little boy all 10 supersized French fries, a portion that would have been so overwhelming, the boy couldn't possibly have consumed them all himself. And the father knew this, but was excited because he would have encouraged his son to bring the fries home to his siblings and even the neighborhood kids. The boy would have been a hero. He would have had more than he would have ever known what to do with. He would have gotten to experience the joy of giving, the joy of giving to his friends and his family. Best part is he could have gotten to know his father's heart better. All he would have had to do is say yes. So my challenge for us as a church is to say yes to generosity. Say yes to partnering with God as stewards of what he's given us. Say yes to turning on the spigot to full blast so God can continue to refresh us as we refresh others. Thanks.